Greetings and welcome back to another episode of The Bit Between. Uh, today we have Mark the Habibi with us. How's it going, man? Hey, doing pretty well, Sabi. How are you? I'm doing I'm doing great. Um, so for people who aren't familiar with your work, uh, do you mind giving us a little bit of introduction and telling people about yourself? Yeah, um, I go by Mark the Habibi online. I am an NFT creator. Um, I make little avatar characters that are inspired by everything around me, but the root of what I'm inspired by is um, Middle Eastern, Arab, Egyptian culture. Cool, cool. Um, so this isn't a very crypto uh, crypto podcast, so do you mind telling people, you know, what, what you do uh, in a very simplistic form? Yeah. Um, and it, are you asking me to describe NFTs? Yeah, yeah. And, and kind of sure. how, what your role is in there. Sure. NFTs are basically a way to own digital art uh, in a world where you could theoretically just copy paste anything. NFTs provides a solution to that to allow you to actually own a digital piece using the blockchain. But I'm sure everybody on your podcast already knows that. Um, what I do is I create, I, I'm, I'm an artist. And so I create little 3D characters called Habibis. And I name my characters. I let people kind of provide insight on maybe what they want the next character to be. And then I make them and then I sell them on diff different blockchain marketplaces. So, and people like collect them in the same way that you would collect the Pokemon cards or baseball cards or whatever you guys collect in UK. Cause I doubt you guys collect yeah. Cards. Yeah. cricket cards. I'm joking. Do you guys have cricket cards? I, I wouldn't be able to tell you, no. I'm not very, I'm not very into the kind of collectible stuff. So, but do you have any sports collectibles? You've got to have maybe, maybe football cards. Yeah. When I was younger, it was football cards. That was, that was the main thing. I, yeah, I was going to say, you had to have though, like yeah. that. I'm sure that was even bigger than maybe baseball cards are in the U S maybe. It was like Panini, Panini stuff for the world cup. That's sort of, that was the thing. They're like, what do you mean Panini stuff? Like Panini is a company that makes these trading cards and like oh. for the World Cup and the Euros and things like that, they would release like yeah. a brand new set and that's that was what the craze was when I was when I was younger. But yeah, I get what you mean. I make, I make things like that, but I make them in a digital form and, and mine are little characters that are inspired by like my Arab roots. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, before yep. we kind of get into the NFT uh, game, uh, where, where did you grow up? You know, what was it like growing up where you did? Because yeah. I, I couldn't find anything, man. <laughs> You got to ask me. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Massachusetts in, in the U.S. My parents immigrated here from Egypt in the 70s. And then they had me in 1990. So I grew up going to, I grew up going to, or, or hanging out with my white friends on the weekdays and then hanging out with my Arab family on the weekends. I'm Coptic, which is a group of Egyptians um, in uh, all over, basically all over Egypt, but a lot in Cairo, a lot in Alexandria. Um, we're, we're, we're Christians, but we, we come from a, a very super old school kind of denomination. And, um, I think our, our origins are like three, 400 AD. And so we're right. We're, we're, it's a super, it's just like a super old group of people. And so I would be hanging out with those people on the weekends so definitely had like a bit of a split personality split lifestyle maybe 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 you can kind of identify identify with that as well sabia yeah like and so 
I kind of wanted to create a project that illustrated that. When I was young, I, I used to see that as being really annoying. I was like, I just kind of always wanted to be with my white friends. And I saw like going to church and hanging out with my Arab family and hanging out with my cousins and hanging out with all the Arabs. I saw it as it was a real nuisance to me in my life. Uh, um, but the older I got, the more I realized that my, my Arab family was really never going to leave. Like they were always there for me. And sometimes like, especially in America, but like friends, friends are great. I love friends, but they're not going to be there for you in the same way that your family will be. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean that in a literal sense and also in a loose sense, because I'm not sure what your experience is, but like, you know, in, in out of culture, like we have uncles, we have a thousand uncles and a thousand aunts. They're not <laughs> really your uncles and your aunts, yeah, not, yeah. but they really are at the same time. They yeah. really will do anything for you. And you can ask them the same things that you would ask of a family member and they will absolutely come through every time. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm Pakistani, so we have similar aspects. Um, but, but what was it that, uh, I'm curious, what was it that kind of annoyed you or frustrated you when you were younger, when it, when it comes to your Arab family, what was it that, that annoyed <coughs> Sorry. you? Sorry, getting over a cold. That's not sexy at all. Um, so. I don't know. I, I was raised. I was raised in a country that really. I was raised in a white world. You know what I mean. And uh, it was a world where being as white as you can was a really good thing, and being as American as you can, and and for for the culture, the area that I grew up in, that meant being white. I think that's what it means in all of America, um, or most parts. And so I wanted to hang out with my friends at school. Um, I went to a school that was primarily white anyways so it's not like we had an arab group um or or any group um like that um we, we did have a we did have a multicultural group that i was a part of um which was really which was really fun and i was like involved in that for a long time and i enjoyed that because i got to learn about people other than other than arabs but for some reason, I grew up and I thought I saw I saw my own culture as being like a nuisance. I don't know why, man. Hmm. I, as, there was a lot of things going on at the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. How old are you, Sabia? I'm only eighteen. I grew up. I mean, I was I was in fifth grade when nine eleven happened. You know what I mean? Hmm. Um, people would make fun of me. You know what I mean? All the time, they would call me the terrorist and stuff like that. You get that too. It yeah. was it was at a, it was at a cultural height back then in yeah. two thousand and one. And I was in fifth grade, which was like prime time for really, for like asshole kids who really, I feel like today, I could be wrong. I feel like today, if you were seniors, like seniors during 9-11, when I say seniors, I mean 12th graders, there's a realistic chance that if someone's like, hey, yo, shut up, you terrorist, there's a good chance that another senior would be like, dude, shut up, man. Like you're... You're being an asshole. You know what I mean? It could happen. But at, at fifth grade, kids no, don't understand. No one that. cares. Kids yeah. do not give a yeah. kids do not give a shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, well, one of one of the ways I kind of I I wouldn't say like people were maliciously racist to me when I, when I was mm -hmm. at school, 
Um, but mm-hmm. I definitely had, you know, the comments. I definitely had, like, random people I didn't even know saying, go back to your own country and, you know, they're going to blow you up and blah, blah, blah. And That's way, pretty racist, dude. Yeah, but it's not It's not like, <laughs> okay, maybe, I don't know. It's not. It wasn't, like, super Let's malicious and super aggressive. It was just okay. kind of, they, I think they thought it was funny, uh, to be honest. Um, sure. So, the, I get it. The, the ways, the main way I dealt with it... Um, was I actually started to make fun of my myself on my own culture in that way, mm-hmm. um, which which I've seen a lot of people use as a coping mechanism, just trying to laugh your way through it. I've um, done that, and as I've gotten older, and as I've met other people who have done that and kind of turned it full circle and got out of that, I've realised how kind of messed up that is, and how little represent how little positive representation people like you and me have in the media which leads people to be so ignorant about it's what we're like, really it's like. almost nothing it's almost nothing you know what i mean the, there are so few arabs in the media and 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 take it one step past that i'm not muslim but there's even fewer muslims in yeah. in, in in general media it's absolutely nuts and something needs to be done about that and i say muslims because even though i'm not muslim it's a huge part of it's a huge part of arab culture and we cannot ignore it you can't you can't i can't step away from it and i can't ignore it and i refuse to i see i see muslims as my brothers and like my actual brothers and sisters yeah you know what i mean i don't i don't see them as being like oh they're a little bit different than me i feel i don't know i feel i i have i have lots of muslim friends and i don't feel like they're we share a lot more than we really don't you know what i mean as yeah. even even in culture day-to-day life I feel like we share ninety percent of our culture. It's all identical. Yeah, you know what I mean. And so it needs to be. There needs to be more representation. Yeah, I mean Riz Ahmed. Um, he's been doing some stuff recently, and and he was saying that the, in a study conducted, like only two percent of speaking roles in I saw that movies were Muslim. I saw that on Instagram last week. And when you think about how many Muslims there are in the world, billions, like like almost 2 billion i think it is when only 2% of speaking roles are from muslims like the 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 tiny representation that we get is uh pretty muslims bad. make up like what 40% of the of our population just so much yeah it's, it's a lot it's crazy it may not be 40% don't quote me but it's it's a, it's massive billions yeah yeah <laughs> you know what i mean actual billions um and and i think we'd have to take a look closer but I doubt many of them would have been positive roles, you know? Uh, no way. It, it would have been the either the token Muslim guy or the guy who's, mm. like, making all the funny jokes, like Apu, Apu from The Simpsons provi- providing the comedic, you know, uh, comedic value, or it will be, like, the shopkeeper, or it will be... Right, of, of course. You know, just, just something very stereotypical. I can't think of one. I can't think of one Muslim besides Rami Yusuf in anything that I've ever watched that was just a normal Muslim dude who had a main role, and he was just like, "I'm Muslim," and that's just a part of who I am. Like, you know what I mean? Can you? I can't. Have you seen Rami? No, I the show. I haven't. No. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. Yeah. You got to watch it. Okay. It's, It's critical. Okay. It's very. It's a really good show, and it's just absolutely. It's absolutely mandatory watching. Okay. I'll, I'll take a look at that. But yeah. I get what you mean. It's just the representation is just not there. Um, mm-hmm. Right. 
so so kind of going forward from that um as you were getting older like did that did that influence who you kind of became as a person did that uh affect you a lot as you kind of grew out of the uh younger stages of that with 9-11 um i mean up until my senior year my 12th grade year of high school i was pretty like i knew i was egyptian but i i kind of didn't even realize that i i was not I didn't realize that people saw me as not being like fully American. I, I thought I was like fully American that nobody ever thought otherwise. Um, and it wasn't until I went to college that everybody's like, yeah, like, I hope this doesn't offend you, but like, you're not, I don't see you as being like a normal white dude. Um, and I was like, are you, are you serious? <laughs> nah. And then I started asking people, I'm like, hey, do you, do you, I look like a normal white American to you, right? And they're like, no. I was like, what? And so I have very light skin, but people just continue to be like, I, I, I never thought that. I thought maybe you were Mexican or Hispanic or Middle Eastern or something. And uh, that, really, that really was tough for me because I just thought my whole life that like, yeah, I'm Egyptian, but like I, I'm... I'm a part of this. I'm a part of the whole American culture. Like I'm, 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 I'm felt one with it. Um, and so hearing that people were like, not in a bad, not a rude way, because it was a very accepting environment in my college, but people were just like, yeah, man, like, I don't think you should see yourself as that. Um, really was like, it was just a lot of processing to do. You know what I mean? That was really tough. Hmm. Um, we didn't grow up in a, we didn't grow up in a world where I didn't grow up in a community or world where people were like it feels really different now especially like even though we're only separated by like twelve years it feels the world that you're growing up in is so different feels so different than the world that I'm growing up in people are really aware people are really open and accepting and super aware of everybody's identity now. And I feel like the, the culture or the time that I grew up in, it's just everybody was just like trying as hard as they can to like to squeeze by and to fit into that model American way. Hmm. You know what I mean? At least in this country. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm sure it's not super different in the UK. Well, I, I wouldn't be able to, to speak for, for, the, for the older generation, but I know, yeah. what, it's, I know what it's like now. And I get what you mean. Like, I don't, I think even though, well, I, I think I, I tried to fit in like, like you, yeah. did, you know, right. But I definitely think it's a little bit easier for me not to fit in. If that's what you're trying to say. Mm, yeah. It's cool. It, I mean, it, it's seen as like a, it's seen as like a strength. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. There would have been absolutely no strength if I if I decided to like buck it and go my own way and be really proud of my identity in mm. school. You know what I mean? There 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 was really no way that that would work out. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's a huge pro. I mean that's a really good thing, honestly. Yeah. So, kind of moving on from the whole race and identity thing. What did you what did you study in college? I studied filmmaking. Oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I I hadn't said that yet, but I, I went to Mass College of Art and Design, really awesome school. That's very inexpensive if you live in Massachusetts because it is a state school, but is a state art school, which is extremely rare, um, across just the world, from what I understand. And so, 
very inexpensive, affordable, um, not the best art school, but pretty good. People travel, people come from all over the US to study there. Um, some people come from all over the world to study there. And so I studied film there, even though it was an art school. And so I had a background in, uh, I mean, they make you take, so the, your first year at Mass Art, you actually don't have a major. Everybody has to take the same classes. Everybody has to take illustration one, illustration two, 3D, multi, like uh, mixed, mixed media class, the name of it, I forget. So they have you take a class in basically every major and you, and you don't have a choice. So I did that and I had a background in some 3D stuff. Ironically, I failed my 3D class, just straight failed it. Um, I remember my professor sat down with me and was like, you should consider dropping this class before it's too late or else you're going to fail because I don't think you're doing well. Wow. Um, and if you stay past, you know how there's like a drop-off period? Yeah. Or if you drop out, you could just take an incomplete and no yeah. one will ever know. Yeah. Now I was like, I was so stubborn. I was like, no, I can do this. I got this. <laughs> didn't have it. I didn't have it. And I, and I failed it. And it's kind of come full circle because now that's that's pretty much what you do every day, right? Ironic. It was. It is ironic, but in my in it, just so everybody knows, it wasn't a computer three D class. We just that's the the name of the course was three D, but it was actually more of a sculptural three D class. Oh. Not sculptural like working with clay or stone, but sculptural like you are just creating three D objects in, in in any way that can okay manifest itself. So if I'm to take like somebody was taking you know paper and and folding it like origami. Yeah, kind of somebody, somebody, I remember somebody was like taking paper and then folding it into knots, little knots in the paper and then would like loop link them together be, and then, and then make literally 500 of them. You know what I mean? And it was kind of, it was kind of a study in what happens if you take a simple, simple action with a 3D object and then you repeat it. It's really actually interesting how you can take one simple thing and by repeating it, make something really beautiful. Because this little knot that I just made with this towel is extremely boring and nobody wants it. But what happens if you have a thousand of them and they're just everywhere? Um, kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you did that filmmaking and then you kind of went into cinematography, which you uh, briefly told me about. Um, and is that is that kind of your main career still now? Or have you kind of moved on from that? I'm in between. I, I don't know. I'm just kind of a nomad right now. I think I'm going to stick with NFTs just because I'm having more fun now than I ever have as a cinematographer. Although cinematographer, I, cinematography, I had a lot of good times. And I even directed a few films, a few of my own documentaries that did well. Yeah. We went to festivals and won awards and stuff like that. It was a great time. But I feel like in the NFT space, the power is so decentralized, like anybody can make it. And it actually feels like when I say anybody, I actually mean anybody. Whereas in the world of film, it is a rigged world. And if anybody says otherwise, like they're lying to you, to be really honest. You know what I mean? It's really rigged against certain types of people. And I'm not saying it was rigged against me. I felt relatively, I felt, I felt, I felt relatively okay. There were some weird moments, but what I am saying is that it's a it's an annoying world with a lot of really entitled people and a lot of just massive massive assholes really <laughs> that, that and they prosper because nobody's everybody's too afraid to like just do anything because that person is usually a white dude he's relatively older somewhere in his 40s 50s could be in his 30s and what are you going to do speak up they'll fire you you know what i mean they'll just ask you to leave the set 
or they won't even, or they just won't invite you back the next day. You know what I mean? Hmm. Um, whereas in, sorry, I'm about to cough. It's fine. Getting over a cold that's not COVID because I got <laughs> tested for it. Um, so if somebody was, was just said that, said the stuff that if somebody said some of the things to me on Twitter that I had been told on film sets, you know what I mean? Whether in private or in public, that person would get jumped on Twitter. I actually think that that person would get jumped. They would get dragged. And in the world of film, every, every, no, nobody wants to say anything because everybody wants to be invited back to set the next day. There is money on the line. You know what I mean? And nobody wants to rock the boat because we need the money. But here in the NFT space, I mean, man, if you say, if you, and you know, there's room for mistakes, obviously, but if you're just like, yeah, I'm not going to go into details and in some of the okay. shit that I saw, but if you do that shit, you're going to get dragged. I mean, if you don't, if you just, so I can get a better idea, if you don't mind me saying, do you don't mind me asking like the gist of what people were saying, you know, I had friends, I had friends, I, I worked for guys that were, that had brown faced for like the 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 Halloween party, and we we're like, look, look at this, you know what I mean? Like, which is a, oh, and and by the way, they hadn't just brown faced. One of them brown faced as Osama bin Laden with a machete that had blood on it, and that was profoundly offensive. Like, I, there's really no way to cut it, you know what I mean? Um, and I was I was really deeply hurt by that. Lots, I mean, some, some people had said things like on set for some, I don't know why we talk politics. We really shouldn't not on set. <laughs> I remember somebody being like, yeah, man, Afghanistan is just such a problematic country. Like most people in that country are just terrorists. So what do we do with that? And I was just like, also racist, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and those were the, you know what I mean? And so like, imagine if somebody said that on Twitter game to over. me, I would just retweet it and be like, have fun, dude. Yeah, it's game over. Have fun, bro. <laughs> like, enjoy, enjoy just the the ish that you would garner. The you know what I mean? Smoke. And obviously, and I know a lot of people are saying cancel culture is dangerous and blah, blah, blah. And some, sometimes it can be, but you also have to take responsibility for your actions. You know what I mean? Sometimes when people are talking about cat cancel culture, there people are going out of, there are people that are going that are extreme on cancel culture. Other times when people are saying, oh, cancel culture is too much, what they really mean is they don't want to take responsibility for their actions. It's it's a bit of a it's a difficult one because for on one hand, you wanna you wanna make people be responsible for the actions. You wanna make them yeah. feel the repercussions of their actions or their words, because that's only right. right. But then on the other hand, there's the there's the oh well we should forgive people, we should let them reform, we should, you know, uh, give them a second chance, but you can only take that so far. And and can you really trust people to reform? Can you really trust people to change? Because some people, no, they just can't. They just won't. They they cannot be. I helped. don't. I don't trust it. But I have very deep respect. And I'm not saying that everyone. I'm not saying that this is the way, and that everyone should be like this. You got to do what you got to do. What is in your heart and what you're convicted to do. But like I was telling you about that, that dude who was white, who was saying, uh, everybody in Afghanistan is just terrorists. Like, what do, what do we do with that? 
I was like, hey man, that's a that's rude and offensive. And he got he he was defensive, saying like, I don't know, like look at the look at the stats. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Excuse me. One week later, I don't talk to this guy. I, he has my number. I have his number because that's how film works. We have everybody's numbers because he was a grip and I was this. So if I need to call him one day, be like, yo, I need you to bring whatever, blah, 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 lights to set. Um, and, and it should go, it should be mentioned that he wasn't working for me on, on this particular job. I was working for him. Um, so he was in a position of power. Um, he called me the next week and said, Hey man, I was talking about my wife and blah, blah, blah. And you know, I, I want to say that I, I just wanted to apologize and say that I think that I was out of line and I shouldn't have said what I said. And I think that was rude and offensive. And, and, you know, and he just gave me a really heartfelt apology. And he wasn't even like, by the way, can you work with me on a film set? You know what I mean? It wasn't like, he wasn't trying to clear the air to ask me a question. He just was straight up apologizing. And I have more respect for that guy than I do for just the average dude who doesn't say anything about yeah. anything i have way more respect for that guy honestly the fact that he was willing to apologize like that yeah huge take some uh take some balls <laughs> no ab absolutely it takes whatever it is that like you know what i mean like it takes a lot of it yeah so i i, I respect him a lot and i appreciate him what do you think it is that that makes you stand out from everybody else and kind of adjacent to that um what do you think it is that makes people collect the nfts that you create i think about that a lot i think about what makes habibi special and what makes me special um and i think that there is no i don't think there is one thing that habibi's does that just is really like man that's the thing that i think that the 3d art that i create some people disagree i think a lot of collectors disagree I think that the 3D art I create is good, but I don't think it's like, man, this this is nuts. I don't think it's like Beeple. Um, I think I'm good at it, <clears throat> but not great. And I'm working to get I'm working to get great. And I think that the way that I release things is good, but not great. I've made mistakes, but I, I release things in a way that is interactive with with the audience. I release things in a way that creates continues to create scarcity while offering people opportunity to collect uh, something that I think is awesome. Um, and I think that Habibi's has a really great community from the very beginning, from the initial like nine that we, that I had released. Um, there was a really great sense of community. A lot of the people that bought the initial nine were people that I either were already in contact with. Um, not that I contacted them to buy it, but there were just people that I had already been chatting with, like Orphan, who I'm sure you've heard of, um, Greek, uh, uh, Ido, um, and a few others <clears throat> who had just bought in from the beginning. But having that community before you even create the NFT is actually critical. A lot of people make NFTs and they're like, somebody buy it. And, and it's almost like, your friends and your community are probably going to be the first people to buy in and that's going to be your core. And then you kind of work out of that. But if you're, if you don't have that core or that initial group of people that you think really want your NFT, then strangers are not just going to walk up and buy it. It's not going to happen. Um, and so community is huge. So, so what tips 
real quick, what tips would you have for people like, you know, th- three things that pe- people need to bear in mind when building a community or something like that? Three things? <laughs> I don't know. Just... Um, gotcha. So, so one, I think get involved on Twitter. Be involved with the conversation of the NFT communities on Twitter. Follow me. Follow people like Orphan Crypto. Follow people like Weesh. I'm looking at my list here. Follow people like um, J838, Savage Dogs. Get involved in the conversations um, and just keep showing up. If you're as if you as a creator are showing up and you're just kind of like buy my stuff, buy my stuff, buy my stuff, buy my stuff, it, you're 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 not gonna make it. You're really not unless you already have a following. And then if you have a following, then go for it. <coughs> but you need to get involved with the community. Some people are saying it's hard because you guys are, it's hard because I'm a little guy and you guys are all have huge followings. And I feel like I can't crack. I can't like elbow my way into the conversation. Um, Yeah. I get that it's hard, but at the same time, I see people do it every day. And so it's hard, but it's not really supposed to be easy. But hopefully it's fair. If it was easy, everybody would do it. Everybody's trying to do it. Yeah, I guess so. But it's not working because, yeah, it's hard. This is hard. You know what I mean? Um, It's hard. Yeah. Uh, Another question for you. What would be some advice for your younger self? That's a great question. I love that question. I ask that question to people all the time. Advice for my younger self. Oof. Hold on. Advice for my younger self. I wish you gave me that question before the interview. I can I, I got I, I can get something good for you. Don't worry. Hold on. Give me a second. Advice for my younger self. Please cut cut this up. Make it sound like I had this ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> um. I need more coffee. You know, it's. I want to make it good. I want to give you something good. I can, I can give you something good, but I need a second. It's good that you think about it, though. It uh, shows that you're intelligent. What were the things that I thought as a, as? <clears throat> what were some of the things that I thought when I was younger that were not true? <clears throat> I mean, when you think about it, I'm perfect. I've never made mistakes. I'm just perfect the way I am. Um, Man, why can't I think of something right now? Let's skip it. Okay. Okay. I got nothing for you right now. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Um, What is it that makes you get out of bed on the morning? (laughs) Oh, this is embarrassing. Um, it depends on the season that I'm in. When I was when I was working on Habibis, I would wake up at 5 a.m. every day and work until 11 p.m. working on Habibis for months. You know what I mean? And when I say months, actually, that's a lie. It's like more like 1.5 months that I was working on Habibis every day for over 12 hours every day. Um, I was waking up at 5 because I was just... 
running on adrenaline somehow for a month and a half. Sometimes when I get less excited about a project, like it's hard. It's, I mean, I can't get as excited about Habibis as I was then because you can't run on adrenaline for your whole life. But now I'm still excited about it. But now these days, the things that get me out of bed is a nice cup of coffee in the morning. <clears throat> My wife um, just rolling out of bed and then waking me up and I go, well, I'm awake now. My dog needs to be taken out. Um, really not inspiring things. These are the things that wake me up these days. Although a nice cup of coffee makes it really, really nice. The simple things. It's, it's simple things like that, but it really does help. Hmm. If you'd have a morning ritual, I recommend it. It's great. I'm sure you do though. Well, I'm, I've been, I've been experimenting a little bit. Um, more recently I've been a bit more lazy cause I've been having late nights, but I've been experimenting. Like I like going on a morning walk. I think that's definitely something that I'm going to put into my morning ritual. That's really I walk 30 me. minutes every day. It's critical. Like in the morning or not in the morning, but I walk every single day for 30 minutes. Yeah. I like, I like walks, but morning walks is super refreshing for me. I just, mm. I don't know what it is. Like it, the wind, the, the birds, everything just makes you feel like you're ready for the day. But. Yeah. If, if people, if you're listening to this and you don't walk every day, you need to, and it's not even a health thing. It's like, I would never, I, I thought about this the other day. I would never have gotten this far in Habibis if I didn't take a daily walk for 30 minutes because I come up with such insanely good <laughs> ideas on my walk. Yeah. Insanely good ideas. Every time I come up with a walk, I was like, I would have never come up with that. And sometimes I, I just wonder like, man, what if I didn't walk every day? Like, man, this would be, that would be bad. That would be very bad for Habibis. Game changer. Game changer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, second to last question. How much of your success that you've had, not just with the Habibis, but in your entire life, how much of the success that you've had would you say is down to chance? And how much would you say is down to hard work? 80-20. 80 hard work, 20 chance. Um, Yeah, I would say very confidently, like 80-20. I think some people might be willing to say, oh, I think it's a little bit higher than you think it is, Mark. You're at the, you know, you mean you're doing well. I would disagree because I've always been, I, I feel like I've been preparing for this moment for a long time. I just didn't know it. <clears throat> I'll give you an example. I went to an art school that was interdisciplinary. So I studied all, uh, I studied everything in art school. I studied everything. I didn't just study film. So I have a small leg up because I went to art school. You don't need to go to art school to be a successful artist, but it does help because you have access to great teachers, hopefully, fingers crossed. And more importantly, you have access to great colleagues. These, the people that you meet at art school are going to be your future, can be your future colleagues for the rest of your life meeting those people and getting to an opportunity to meet like-minded people, however you do it, is critical. So advantage number one, having that. Advantage number two, I've actually always been an economics nerd, even though I went to art school. Really love economics. I listen to economics podcasts every day. I love Planet Money. I love Freakonomics. There's a few other podcasts that I listen to, but I've always been really interested in supply and demand. Um, GDP, how small, how small countries can kind of try to find ways to alleviate and fix their problems. Um, my wife studied economics for a period of time as well. So I, I like economics. Um, been following crypto for a while. So been into Bitcoin since 2013. Um, so we're on advantage number three here. 
Um, advantage number four, I've actually run online communities before. I ran a successful online community earlier in the pandemic. I started and ran it called, she's not going to say the name of it, but it was a really successful like gaming community. I ran, I actually ran two of them. The first one got up to 10,000 people. Um, it was essentially a gaming community that was focused on around letting gamers come together and collaborate on playing games together. Let's play Valorant. Let's play Counter-Strike. Let's play Destiny. We want to play together. But the but the idea, the thing that made our community special is that um, it's for adults and it's for people that don't want to deal with B, like BS stuff that you always have in gaming. Racism, homophobia, xenophobia, any of that stuff. If you do any of that stuff, you're out. That's the whole idea of the community. It's for adults. It's for people who are not little kids saying dumb, dumb, dumb shit. Um, that grew to 10,000 members in three, in three months. And then I handed that off. And then I ran another gaming community um, that was based around a persona. And that actually grew to 9,000 YouTube subscriptions and a few thousand on Twitch. It was relatively successful. Um, and I did that also during the pandemic. So I have a lot of experience with online communities. I'm not, that's why I have this whole streamer set up. Like I'm ready to go. Um, I'm not in for, I'm not afraid in front of the camera because I've been a filmmaker. I see other people panic in front of the camera all the time. So when you turn the camera on me, I've just been around cameras enough to know I just, to just completely ignore it. It doesn't, you know what I mean? Having this camera in front of me means nothing to me. Yeah. Um, so there's that. So running online communities is critical. So I just have, I have a lot of things that I'm just playing to my advantages right now that all kind of help Habibis be successful. You know what I mean? Yeah. Lots of a diversity of skills. Yeah. Yeah. Final I didn't know that, that these things would ever come together to make something like Habibis. This is nuts. Yeah. But it did. Yeah, yeah. Online skills, man. That's crazy. Final question. If you had one message for everybody listening to this podcast, what would it be? Do something. Please do something different. Please don't copy someone someone's work um if you're new a lot of people i think a lot of people that are going to be listening to your podcasts might be relatively new artists who see the nft stuff and are like wow this is exciting i want to make nfts too and i'm just going to read a quote because <clears throat> this is the best advice that i've ever seen and instead of just regurgitating it in my own words i'm just going to read the quote I'm going to Google it right now because I don't have it memorized because it's way too long. Okay. This is like a paragraph. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Are you, are, do you know Ira Glass? I don't think so. He is a one of the greatest radio legends of all time. I know that sounds boring, radio, but he actually has been, had a radio show for like 25 years. Okay. And it's a storytelling podcast, a nonfiction storytelling podcast. So he's basically a journalist and it's just absolutely incredible. He is a legend of, of, of storytelling. And somebody interviewed him and asked him the same question. And this is what he said. He said, nobody tells this to people who are beginners. I wish someone had told me, all of us who do creative work, we get into this because we have good taste. But there is this gap. For the first couple of years you make stuff, it's just not that good. It's trying to be good. It has potential, but it's not. But your taste, the thing that got you into this game is still killer. And you have... And your taste is why your work disappoints you. A lot of people never get past this phase. They quit. 
Most people I know who are, who do interesting creative work went through years of this. We know our work doesn't have to be this special thing that we want it to have. We all go through this. And if you are just standing out and if you are just starting out or you are still in this phase, you got to know that it's normal. And the most important thing you can do is do a lot of work, put yourself on a deadline so that every week you finish this one piece. It's only by going through a volume of work that you will close the gap and your work will be as good as your ambitions. And I took, and I took longer to figure out how to do this than anyone I've ever met. That's what he's saying. It's going to take a while. It's normal to take a while. You just got to fight your way through. I love that. I absolutely it's love that. that. It's I great. It. Um, it's okay. If, I mean, if you're in the, if you're starting out, I was saying this to someone the other day, if you're just starting out and you think that your work is good, that's bad. That's a bad sign. It's a sign that you probably don't have good taste. Yeah, because true. you have to make a lot of crap in order yep. to get good. Yeah. Yeah. It, you just do. Nobody starts off and it's just like, I'm a friggin' genius. It, yeah. it, it's, it's extremely rare and it's probably not you. And if that's okay, that it's not you. It's not me either. Yeah. You have to uh, put in the work. Um, yep. And on that note, it's kind of time to, to wrap everything up. Um, if cool. people want to find you online, find your stuff, where can they go? Twitter is the best way. Mark the Habibi. Mark the Habibi on Twitter. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming on this episode of the podcast. Um, you know, really appreciate it. And I'll uh, hopefully speak to you soon. Cool. Cheers, Sabia. Thank you so much for having me on.